and his hands were steady on the hands of Moshe and the hand of God. Towards the end of Parashat B'Shalach, the Torah records the story of the attack by the Amalekites on the recently freed Israelite nation. After two brief verses announcing the arrival of the Amalekites at Rephidim for the purpose of warring with Israel and describing Moshe's commanding of Yehoshua and the preparations for the next day's battle, the Torah recounts for us what happened the very next day, the day of the war. So Yehoshua did as Moshe had said to him and battled with Amalek, and Moshe, Aharon, and Chur went up on top of the hill. And when Moshe held up his hand, Yado, then Israel prevailed. And when he put down his hand, then Amalek prevailed. But Moshe's hands were heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aharon and Chur supported his hands, biadav, the one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steadfast until the going down of the sun. And Yehoshua overwhelmed the people of Amalek by sword. Even a quick reading of this passage suffices to indicate that the hands of Moshe constitute a key theme of the battle against Amalek. First and foremost, on the technical plane alone, the term hand or hands, indicated by the Hebrew term yad and its variations, appears five times in our passage. Moreover, on the thematic plane, the battle, Yehoshua's success or failure down on the battlefield, seems to hinge on the raising or lowering of Moshe's hands up on the hill. When Moshe raises his hands, the Israelites prevail. When they are lowered, the Israelites fall. Indeed, the causal connection between the hands of Moshe and the Israelites' military fortunes seems so close that Moshe's heavy hands must be propped up by Aaron and Hur to ensure the Israelites' victory. While all this is readily apparent from a quick read of the text, a closer read reveals a chiastic structure that further highlights the literary and thematic points already noted. The structure can be mapped as follows. The first section, Yehoshua and Amalek. The second section, Moshe, Aharon, and Chur. Aharon and Chur accompany Moshe to the top of the hill. The third section, raising of Moshe's hands and prevailing of Israel. The fourth section, which parallels the third section, lowering of Moshe's hands, prevailing of Amalek. The fifth section, which parallels the second section, Moshe, Aaron, and Hur. Aaron and Hur support Moshe's heavy hands. And the sixth and final section, which parallels the first section, Yehoshua and Amalek. As we can see, the raising and lowering of Moshe's hands and the respective consequences for the battle down below, the central segments of this structure lie at the conceptual center of the story. Everything depends on the positioning of Moshe's hands. Moving outwards from the central axis of our middle segments indicates that the role of Aaron and Hur is to guarantee the proper positioning of Moshe's hands. This, in turn, yields the desired result in the outer segments, Yoshua and the Israelites' victory over Amalek. All this leads to an obvious and famed question. As already pointed out by the Mishnah, is it the hands of Moshe that wage war? In other words, how exactly does the positioning of the hands of Moshe affect the battle down below? What exactly constitutes the nature of the causal connection between the raising and lowering of Moshe's hands and the fortunes of the Israelites? Before turning our attention to the problem of the power of Moshe's hands, let us briefly focus on a different problem, one that emerges from the larger context of the war with Amalek. In point of fact, the war with Amalek is not the first crisis of the people of Israel faced at Rephidim. Immediately preceding the story of the war with Amalek, in the first half of chapter 17, 
The Torah informs of the people's arrival at Rifidim, their lack of water, and the subsequent crisis that ensues. In a place eventually renamed Masa Umriva, due to the people's striving, Riv, with Moshe, and testing, Nasotam, of God, the people complain regarding the lack of drinking water, lament the fact that Moshe has redeemed them from Egypt to kill them, their children, and their cattle by thirst, and apparently threaten physical violence against Moshe. As we should remember, the crisis finds its resolution in God's command to Moshe to take his stick, matcha, in his hand, biyadcha, and strike the rock, batsur, upon or near the mountain of Chorev. This outline of the first Rafidim story should make us realize that the story of Masa Umriva parallels and foreshadows the second half of chapter 17, the story of the war with Amalek. First and foremost, both stories happen in Rafidim. Furthermore, both narratives revolve around life and death crises, in which the children of Israel face the specter of death. In Rifidim 1, the story of Masa Umriva, dying of thirst constitutes the threat. In Rifidim 2, the story of the war with Amalek, death at the hands of Amalek comprises the threat. Moreover, in a third and crucial point of parallel, in both passages the crisis is resolved by the same means. As already pointed out, at Masa Umriva, God tells Moshe to take his stick in his hand and strike the rock. Doing so produces water and makes the difference between life and death. Similarly, in Rifidim 2, the story of the war with Amalek, Moshe resolves the crisis by means of his hand. As already emphasized, the raising of Moshe's hand plays a key role in the story, directly affects the outcome of the battle, and thereby makes the difference between life and death. But this hand is not empty. Although not emphasized above, in the first and introductory segment of the story of the war with Amalek, Moshe informs Yehoshua that, Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the stick of God in my hand. Like in Rifidim 1, Moshe's hand and stick constitute the means for resolving the crisis and saving Israel. Finally, in an additional and related point of parallel, there is a third and perhaps even fourth symbol involved in each of the resolutions. In the story of Masam Riva, Moshe's hand and stick strike the rock. The rock is located at or near Chorev, in other words, Har Sinai. The crisis is resolved by the triad of Moshe's hand, his stick, and a rock that is in some sense of, either located on or near, a mountain. But in point of fact, this is also the case in Rifidim 2, the story of the war with Amalek. As mentioned above, due to the heaviness of Moshe's hands, he requires the support of Aharon and Hur. Only after mentioning the curious fact that they took a rock and placed it under him so that Moshe could sit upon it, does the text report that Aharon and Hur each supported one of Moshe's hands? Was Moshe unable to stand until the end of the day? Was he that much taller than Aharon and Hur, so that it was impossible for them to support his arms unless he was seated and they were standing? Or is this just the sensible way to do things? Either way, the resolution of the crisis in our second story again involves the third symbol of a rock. Without the rock, the crisis remains unresolved. In addition, this rock is found on the hill located in Rifidim, the rise that Moshe, Aaron, and Hur have climbed to witness the battle below. In other words, both stories' resolutions hinge upon not just the hands of Moshe and his staff, but also a rock that is somehow of some hill or mountain. To put this all together, in confronting the story of the war with Amalek, we face more than just the traditional problem of the hands of Moshe, the means by which the elevation of Moshe's hands influences the battle below. 
We also face the perplexing parallel between the first half of chapter 17, the story of Masa Umriva, what we have termed Rifidim 1, and the second half of chapter 17, the narrative reporting the attack of Amalek, what we have termed Rifidim 2. As argued, the stories are juxtaposed both geographically and textually. They happen in the same place and constitute two halves of the text of chapter 17. As argued, they parallel each other in their themes of crisis and resolution and the means and symbolisms that play a role in resolving the crisis. This brings us to an obvious question. What is the point of this parallel? What constitutes the meaning of these literary and thematic connections between the stories of Masam Riva and the war with Amalek? A slightly broader perspective on Parashat B'Shalach, focusing on one of the key themes found in this part of the Torah, should help begin to resolve these issues. War and battle constitutes one of these key themes. For example, the segment known as Shirat Hayam, the Song of the Sea, is in fact a song of victory, which praises and celebrates the Lord's battle prowess and a victory against the Egyptians. As indicated by the song at Yamsuf, the Sea of Reeds, Israel perceived God as a man of war, Ish Milchama. But this is not just the Israelites' perception. Throughout the course of the story of Yamsuf, both Moshe and the Egyptians refer to God's fighting, or warring, against the Egyptians. When the Israelites have their back pinned to the sea by the Egyptians, Moshe informs them that they have nothing to fear, for God shall fight, Yilachem, for you. Likewise, at the last minute before being drowned in the sea, the Egyptians are gripped by second thoughts and think of fleeing from pursuit of the Israelites. As the Egyptians phrase it, for God fights, Nilcham, for them, against Egypt. The Milchama, the battle, fight or war, at Yamsuf belongs to God. Consequently, so does the victory celebrated in Shirat Hayam. But this is not all. The very beginning of Parashat B'Shalach also refers to Milchama. At the opening of the parasha, the text informs us that God chose not to guide the children of Israel directly to the land of Canaan by way of the land of Plishtim. Although it might have been the shorter route, there existed the strong possibility that in the event of seeing war, Bir Otam Milchama, the people would quickly scurry back to Egypt. Instead, God chose to guide the people on a roundabout path via the route of Yamsuf. In other words, both the opening segment of Parashat B'Shalach, the story of the Israelites' journey out of Egypt in the direction of Yamsuf, and the story of Yamsuf itself, utilize the stem Lamed Chet Mem, connoting battle, fighting, and war, and are concerned with the topic of war. As such, the two stories can be thought of as a kind of discourse on war, as introduction to the war at Yamsuf and the war at Yamsuf. To put this all together, Assuming that Shirat Hayam, the victory song that follows the war, comprises somewhat of a separate literary unit, Parashat B'Shalach opens with a war story that contains the term war three times. Alternatively, if we choose to factor in Shirat Hayam, Parashat B'Shalach opens with an extended war story, which utilizes the term war four times. This brings us back to the end of Parashat B'Shalach and the story of the war with Amalek. Like the possible extended version of the war story of Yamsuf that opens the Parashah, the narrative reporting the war with Amalek utilizes the stem Lamed Chet Mem, connoting battle and war four times. In other words, the parasha begins and ends with parallel stories of war. While this opening and closing of the parasha in and of itself is not particularly significant, the two narratives are obviously meant to stand in some sort of relation to each other. In point of fact, this connection of theme and terminology is but the tip of the proverbial iceberg. 
Numerous other parallels exist between the main body of the War of Yamsuf and the story of the War with Amalek. For example, in a second parallel between the stories, both involve victory by means of Moshe's stick. At Yamsuf, God tells Moshe to take his stick, matcha, and extend it over the sea. It is by the means of Moshe's stick that the sea is split, Egypt is defeated, and the children of Israel are saved. Such is the case as well in the war with Amalek. As pointed out earlier, in the introductory segment of the story, Moshe informs Yoshua that while Yoshua battles Amalek down below, he will stand on top of the hill with the stick of God in my hand. In parallel to the events at Yamsuf, when Moshe raises his hands to save Israel, it is by the means of the stick that the battle is won, Amalek is defeated, and the children of Israel are saved. Furthermore, in what might be thought of as a third connection, a series of linguistic echoes, if not full linguistic and thematic parallels, unites the two stories. At Yamsuf, when the children of Israel are gripped by panic in the face of the looming Egyptian onslaught, Moshe informs them that they should not be afraid, that they need not do more than stand, hityatsvu, and witness the salvation God will perform for them. Similarly, at Rifidim, Moshe informs Yoshua that during the battle he will stand, nitzav, on the hill, apparently a position from which he can witness the outcome of the next day's battle. Both narratives are in some sense stories of standing, involving the term nun tzadi bet, and the actions of standing and witnessing. On a similar note, the narrative of the war at Yamsuf, as part of its role as the culmination of the Exodus story, makes extensive use of the term kaved, previously used to connote the hardening of Paro's heart, God intends to gain glory, ikavda, through the defeat and drowning of the Egyptians at Yamsuf. Consequently, at the crucial moment, while attempting to flee the onrushing waters, the Egyptians find that their chariot wheels have become stuck and that they can only maneuver heavily, bikvedut. As such, God finalizes the process begun with the hardening of Paro's heart and completes his glorious victory over Paro and Egypt. But as we should remember, this term reappears in the narrative of war with Amalek. Moshe's hands are heavy, kvedim, and must be supported by Aaron and Hur. Again, both narratives share a common terminology, and in some sense are both stories of heaviness. Likewise, in a further example of linguistic echoing, both stories utilize the term emunah, meaning belief, faith, and steadfastness. In the final scene of the story of Yamsuf, the people see the Egyptians' dead bodies on the shore of the sea. They see what God has done. The story culminates with the statement that the people believed, Vayaminu, in God and his servant Moshe. Strikingly, the story of the war with Amalek employs identical terminology and a related set of concepts. It, too, is a story of Emunah, of the steadfast, reliable, and unshakable quality that faith and belief are all about. After Moshe's hands are supported by Aaron and Hur, the Torah tells us that they were Emunah, steadfast and reliable until the setting of the sun. In some sense, both narratives are stories of Emunah. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, in an overall fourth point of parallel, both narratives utilize the term Yad, usually referring to a physical hand and sometimes symbolizing either control or bold and strong action as a central motif and theme. At Yamsuf, the children of Israel are depicted as leaving Egypt with a high hand, and Moshe extends his hand over the sea to part and close the waters. God saves Israel from the hand of Egypt, and Israel sees the great hand that God has done against the Egyptians. By no surprise, in this story of the hand of Moshe and the hand of God that culminates the Exodus narrative, 
the term hand appears seven times. In parallel, at Rifidim, as pointed out earlier, Moshe ascends the hill with the stick in his hand. The battle rises or falls based on the positioning of Moshe's hands. And as emphasized above, Moshe's hands were heavy and needed to be supported by Aaron and Hur. Only then were his hands reliable and steadfast. Factoring in a final use of the term hand in the narrative, this time referring to God's hand, as part of the phrase, hand upon the throne of God, describing God's oath to wage war against Amalek for all generations, yields another story in which the term hand appears seven times. Again, by no surprise, in the story of the war with Amalek, apparently another story of the hand of Moshe and the hand of God, the term hand appears seven times. How should we interpret these connections between the story of the war at Yamsuf and the story of the war with Amalek? What is the point of the mirroring of the two stories that open and close out Parashat B'Shalach? More importantly, how does the echoing of the story of Yamsuf and the story of Amalek inform and affect our reading of the latter narrative? Quite possibly, we have already alluded to much of the conceptual work necessary to resolve these questions. At Yamsuf, in our first story of the hand of Moshe and the hand of God, the physical hand of Moshe constitutes the concrete means by which the waters are parted, Israel is saved, and the Egyptians are drowned. But lest we forget who really acts here, the story closes with the following two verses. And God saved Israel that day from the hand, Miyad, of Egypt, and Israel saw Egypt dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw the great hand, Hayad Hagdolah, which God did upon Egypt, and the people feared God. From a philosophical perspective, the term Hayad Hagdolah, translated here as the great hand, connotes a mighty action. After all, God does not have a physical body. Yet nevertheless, from a literary and theological perspective, the base meaning of hand remains crucial. The hand of God, a metaphor for the power, will, and providence of God, manifests itself in the world by means of the physical hand of Moshe. When God's hand, his power, will, and providence, saves Israel from the hand of Egypt, it does so through the means and conduit of the hand of Moshe. Apparently, in paralleling our two stories of the hands of Moshe and the hand of God, the story of the war at Yamsuf and the war with Amalek, the Torah signals us that we should reach the exact same conclusion regarding our second story, the war with Amalek. While the battle indeed hinges upon the positioning of the physical hands of Moshe and the raising or lowering of his hands determines the outcome, Moshe's hands constitute no more than a means for the manifestation of the hand of God in the world. While Moshe's hands do indeed win the day, they do so due to their functions as a conduit for the power, will, and providence of God. In other words, we are meant to conclude that the two stories are fundamentally identical. This reading can be further supported by taking a careful look at the text that concludes the full version of the War with Amalek story, a segment not analyzed up until this point. The story concludes with the following postscript, or closing. And God said to Moshe, Write this for a memorial in the book, and place it in the ears of Yoshua. I will surely wipe out the memory of Amalek, Macho Emche, from under the heaven. And Moshe built an altar and called its name... God is my banner, Adonai Nisi. And he said, For his hand, Yad, is upon the throne of God, an oath of God to war against Amalek. The story ends with a reference to the hand of God, and a mention of God's war against Amalek. This constitutes part of a larger emphasis on the action or agency of God in this segment. It is God who commands memory. God who states that he will wipe out the memory of Amalek, 
God and his altar that are the banner of Israel's victory, and God who swears to war against Amalek. To put this in logical terms, if not textually linear order, the war against Amalek, both in the past and future, belongs to God. It is he who has repulsed their attack and swears to wage war in the future. Alternatively, in our previous terminology, the hand of Moshe, that which has carried the day, is really the hand of God. While this reading seems fundamentally correct and certainly resolves the problem of the hands of Moshe, the question of the means by which Moshe's hands influence the battle below, nevertheless, it may overstate the case. This can best be realized by returning to the sustained parallel between our two stories of the hands of Moshe and the hand of God, the war at Yamsuf and the war with Amalek. In point of fact, a few crucial differences divide the stories. As we should remember, one of the points of parallel consists of the term nun bet, meaning standing, and symbolizing standing and witnessing. At Yamsuf, the children of Israel are told by Moshe to stand still, hityatsevu, and see what is about to happen to the Egyptians. In the story of the war with Amalek, after charging Yehoshua with the task of choosing men and battling the enemy, Moshe declares his intention to stand upon a nearby hill, apparently for the purpose of seeing and observing the battle. But herein lies the nub of the matter. In the narrative of the war at Yamsuf, standing symbolizes and demands absolute passivity by the children of Israel. As translated above, Hityatsevu should be interpreted as stand still or stand by. As Moshe continues on to inform the children of Israel, and you will see the salvation of God which he will do for you this day, God shall fight for you. Yilachem lachem. At Yamsuf, the battle belongs solely to God. The children of Israel stand still and silent. But such is not the case in the war with Amalek. When Moshe ascends the hill to stand and see, he witnesses the children of Israel actively battling Amalek. As he himself commands Yoshua in the introduction of the story, choose men and go out to battle against Amalek. Overall, the text refers at least four times to Yoshua and Israel fighting Amalek, and twice uses the specific term war against Amalek to describe Israel's role. In sum, our symbol of standing connects up to the activity of the children of Israel. They're playing an active role in their own defense and rescue at Rephidim. They are active participants, not the passive witnesses of the war at Yamsuf. This difference between passivity and activity leads to a related and crucial distinction between the two stories. The story of Yamsuf involves the shattering of the natural order, an obviously miraculous event done by God. The splitting of the sea is not a normal occurrence. Even the Egyptians realize, albeit a bit too late to make a difference, that something miraculous, something divinely driven is going on. As they themselves state, God wars against Egypt. Similarly, in the culmination of the story, as predicted by Moshe, the children of Israel see the great hand of God in saving them from Egypt. Given the obviously miraculous quality of the events that have transpired, there can be no doubt about it. It is God and God alone who has shattered the natural order, defeated Egypt, and saved Israel. But such is not the case regarding the war with Amalek. The events themselves, the battle and defeat of Amalek, seem to transpire in a naturalistic fashion, in accord with the well-known norms of the world. An attack takes place, battle preparations are made, a young officer is chosen to lead troops, the elderly leader ascends to a nearby hilltop to observe, the battle ebbs and flows, but in the end the enemy is repulsed. No supernatural cloud or fire appears to defend Israel, and water does not miraculously cease flowing and stand upright. In point of fact, 
the single strange and exceptional feature of the battle can also be explained naturalistically, without reference to the miraculous. Rashbam argues that the raising of Moshe's hands grasping the staff of God affects the morale of the warriors below. Moshe is located not just where he can see the battle, but where the fighters of Israel can see him, his hands and the staff of God. As pointed out above, the staff is the banner of God, the standard that serves to rally the morale, strength, and fighting prowess of Israel. When Moshe raises their banner, Israel is victorious. When he lowers it, they fall. As Rashbam puts it, such is the way of war. In other words, there is nothing miraculous about it. Given all that we have argued above, this radically naturalistic interpretation of the war with Amalek seems somewhat off the mark. As argued above, the story constitutes a story of the hand of Moshe and the hand of God. Just as at Yamsuf, Moshe's hand represents and serves as a conduit for the hand of God, the power and providence of God, so too in the war with Amalek. This cannot be negated. Nevertheless, Rashbam's reading highlights an important point, the obscure, if not completely hidden, nature of God's intervention at Rividim. The events occur within the natural order, and could theoretically be interpreted as nothing more than the way of the world, the work of the battle prowess, both psychological and physical, of Israel. In sum, we face a complex of differences between the war at Yamsuf and the war with Amalek. At Yamsuf, God's intervention, the action of the hand of God, is unilaterally and openly miraculous. The children of Israel are no more than passive observers. But not so at Rephidim. In the war with Amalek, God's intervention, the hand of God, remains somewhat hidden, and the children of Israel play the role of active participants in their own victory and rescue. They are the ones who fight the physical battle. In this partnership between God and Israel, the manifestation of God's hand in the world, the victory against Amalek depends not just upon the movement of the hands of Moshe, but also upon the active partnership of the children of Israel. The mode of manifestation of God's hand in the story is bilateral rather than unilateral. But this is only part of the story. As pointed out above in analyzing Rashbam's reading, the action of Israel consists first and foremost of something mental rather than physical, awareness that precedes action. Seeing their standard, the staff of God held aloft in the hand of Moshe, the very same hand, staff, and symbol of the divine hand that split the sea and drowned the Egyptians at Yamsuf constitutes the difference between victory and defeat. While this can be interpreted in a purely psychological fashion as no more than a matter of morale, as already pointed out, I believe such an interpretation seriously understates the text's intent and message. God's hand is not absent at Rifidim, a mere symbol of a distant past to be mobilized to boost morale. Rather, the sustained parallel we have analyzed serves to make the point that God's hand is actually present at Rifidim, just as it was at Yamsuf. But this does not occur solely by the means of the mechanistic manipulation of God's hand through its symbolic counterpart of Moshe's hand. Rather, as Rashbam's insight teaches us, it is the children of Israel's apprehension of the symbolic intertwining of the hand of Moshe and the hand of God, their memory of what happened at Yamsuf, their attachment and belief that constitutes the means by which God's hand becomes present as a metaphysical reality at Rifidim. Their awareness, memory, and belief comprise the real conduit for the presence of God's power and providence in the world. Having dealt with the problem of Moshe's hands via the prism of the parallel between the war at Yamsuf and the war with Amalek, let us turn our attention to the second question raised earlier on, the problem of the relation between the story of Masah Umrivah, the children of Israel's complaint for water that opens chapter 17, and the story of the war with Amalek, the second half of chapter 17. 
As pointed out previously, besides being juxtaposed textually, the stories parallel each other in geography, life, and death crises, and their stick-and-stone resolutions. As argued above, the Torah deliberately structures a Rifidim 1, the story of Masa Umriva, and a Rifidim 2, the story of the war with Amalek. Our current reading of the latter story, Rifidim 2, should help resolve the connection and explicate the point of the parallel. Realizing that the children of Israel's battle against Amalek hinges not just upon their battle prowess, nor the direct mobilization of the power of God through the movement of Moshe's hands, casts a new light upon the story of the war with Amalek. In a certain sense, the real battle against Amalek consists of a battle for awareness and attachment. To the extent that Israel possesses historical memory, to the extent that they are aware of God's actions at Yamsuf, that they possess a consciousness that God's hand has acted for them in the past and can act for them in the future, then God is with them and Israel is victorious. If we think about it, this issue of awareness constitutes exactly the problem at Masam Riva. The final verse of Rifidim 1 reads as follows, And he called the name of the place Masa Umriva, because of the striving of the children of Israel and their testing of God, saying, Is God among us or not? At Masa Umriva, in the story of Rifidim 1, the children of Israel wonder whether God is among them or not. To put this slightly differently, they lack awareness and certainty of God's presence and providential support. Consequently, they complain about the lack of water, lament leaving Egypt, strive with Moshe, and test God. Their actions stem from a lack of faith. From this perspective, the events of Rephidim 2 constitute the reversal of Rephidim 1, or the repair of the underlying dynamic. Whereas at Masam Riva, the children of Israel lacked awareness of God's support and providence, in other words, the hand that had redeemed them from Egypt, now they are forced to struggle with their own lack of awareness, memory, and attachment. They are forced to cultivate that awareness and maintain a consciousness of God's hand in their lives. Alternatively, the rise and fall of their fate, of their fortunes in battle, on the basis of the raising of Moshe's hand, or God's hand, drives home the lesson that God is with them, just as he was at Yamsuf. He is amongst them. To close the circle, let us return one last time to the war at Yamsuf and war with Amalek parallel that frames Prashad B'Shalach. As we should remember, faith and belief constitute the crescendo of the events at Yamsuf. After seeing the great hand of God, the people are gripped by the awe of God. In the story's concluding line, the Torah tells us that the people believed, vaya'aminu, in God. Previously, the people had thought that they would surely perish, slaughtered on the shore of the sea by the hands of their Egyptian masters. Despite the plagues and all they had witnessed, they could not believe or imagine that God would or could save them. At Yamsuf, the people finally believed. They knew of God's unilateral action, his great hand, his power to save them. But how durable was this belief? For that matter, would he save them again in the future? Would he care for them on a constant basis? Would God's hand be with them in history, within the natural order, in bilateral as opposed to unilateral moments? These questions find their answer at the end of Parashat B'Shalach, in the war with Amalek, another story of Emunah. At Rifidim, the children of Israel learn about a new type of Emunah, not that of belief, of acknowledging open miracles and power and knowing that God has saved them, but that of faith. They learn that God's hand remains with them and will remain with them even within the natural order, on a constant basis, as part of a bilateral partnership. They learn a kind of emunah necessary for the trials and travails of history and the future.